Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by the best, soon-to-be biggest event in wealth management. That's Future Proof. It is in beautiful, sunny Huntington Beach, California, September, what are the dates, Ben? 15th to 18th on the beach. It's honestly, I mean, th- there's so much to do. It's, it's kind of hard to even name everything that we do out there. You get to see people, see old friends, network, one-on-one meetings, listen to small talks with groups of people, listen to large talks with really well-known industry people. I go for a run on the beach every morning. Uh, I don't. Jump in the ocean. <laughs> jump in the ocean. There's pool time. There's drink time. There's eating time. There's food trucks. There's music. The biggest jump from year one to year two was something called the breakthrough sessions. And what breakthrough was, was speed dating. And it's opt-in. So you're not like paired with people you don't want to talk to. And it's 15 minutes. And I think there was like 20,000 meetings or some, some crazy number. And I've said this a million times. If you are, if you left future proof and you didn't derive economic value, forget about all of the fun and there's tons of fun. If you didn't derive economic value from that conference, you should probably consider leaving the industry. Yeah. And I think those meetings went way better than we thought. And there's probably more of those meetings taken than we would have assumed because we, we'd never done that before. So it was fun. So registration is live. You can go to futureproof.advisorcircle.com or go to our show notes on our website. We'll have a link. If you've wanted to go, please. I feel like last year when we got to Future Proof, Ben, we were like, did we not like pump it up enough? Did we not do this conference justice? Please. Hear our words. If you want to go, this is this is well worth it. It's going to be the best event of the year. That's futureproof.advisorcircle.com. Link in show notes, et cetera, et cetera. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Going to start the show with some exciting news. We started a tax practice at Ritholtz Wealth Management. I think this is the third year that we're doing it. And there is more demand from our clients than we have capacity to serve them. Because right now, we've got the absolutely incredible Bill Arturonian doing all the heavy lifting, doing every tax filing. We need help. We need more people. If you want to join us and be part of this rocket ship that is our tax filing, tax practice team, uh, we're growing quickly. We have more demand that we know what to do with. Great work environment, great people, great clients. Link in the show notes to learn more. Reach out to us if you want an introduction. If you are interested or if you are existing, somebody who's preferably, if we could find this unicorn, you're in the RA industry, you're into taxes, maybe you even are a CPA, or maybe you're a CFP and you're leaning towards tax, please, please reach out to us. We have to have a lot of tax nerds who listen to the show. God, come on. Come on. Reach out. So, Ben, did we have fun in Kansas City or did we have fun in Kansas City? Kansas, by the way, Kansas City, Kansas. No, we were in Kansas City, Missouri. No, we weren't. <laughs> yes, we were. Come on. <laughs> yes.
Did you not? Yes, we were in Kansas City, Missouri. Are you kidding me? We were on the Missouri side. <laughs> Glad you're paying attention. This is. Are you sure about? No, I don't. I don't yes. <laughs> Kansas City. All right, maybe you're right. Yes, Kansas City, Missouri is the bigger side. Kansas City, Missouri is the bigger side. Yes, that's where the Chiefs are. They're in Missouri. I just blew your mind. Holy cow. We were in Missouri that whole time? You were in Missouri. You know what? Was, that's, that's why I couldn't use FanDuel. I <laughs> see the list of approved states. I'm like, what the heck? I'm in Kansas. And then when we got to the airport, when we got to the airport, when I was on FanDuel, then I knew we were in Missouri. I thought we were in Kansas City, Kansas. It was you and me and 1,100 farmers. And the interesting thing to me about the whole ordeal is the psychology behind money is always going to be there, and it, it doesn't really matter what the situation is. It's interesting because a lot of the people there were farmers who had a lot of money, and it was in this illiquid business of theirs that is their farm because they were saying, like, hey, take how many acres you have and multiply it by this number. This is how much this person is worth, and it's a lot of money, right? But they have this – they have the need the, or the probably desire to – diversify that and there's a lot of like psychology behind it and it was interesting just because it's not just businesses it's like it's like family in family, some cases yes. generations it was just interesting to think about that from a different angle and perspective so hearing their thoughts on on how they manage their wealth when a lot of it is tied into this land that they own and you're right and it is maybe family land has been passed down for generations but i'm still not over the fact that i'm, I'm shook that we were in missouri the whole time <sighs> I, I thought you knew this so it, so I'm looking at, I'm looking when I when I Google Kansas City Kansas the Kansas City Missouri city that's a skyline that pops up is there not a is the Kansas City in Kansas not like a big downtown metro area I I don't, I don't remember the Uber driver was explaining this to us on the way to the airport you must have totally checked out of that conversation No I was listening my head I, I okay what was our favorite quote from the conference <sighs> Uh it was interesting cuz it was a lot of cuz it was a it was a agriculture conference. So it was a lot of commodity stuff. So we heard, we learned a lot about commodities and what people think about that. But there was a guy on stage who said, listen, I'm a gold bug. I piss more money away in gold than I'm worth. I just, I like that he, he admitted it. He's like, this is my personal disposition. I I'm attracted to gold and that, that I, those ideals or whatever comes along with being a gold bug. And he, he said, was also, he was not surprisingly, he was a big national debt guy. Yes, and it, but it was interesting just, just to hear at least someone admit, like, I, it hasn't worked out for me. Being Having this mindset hasn't, well, at least in this one asset. I, I thought that was interesting. We both, we both, like, kind of elbowed each other when that comment was said. You know, it's different. Like, when, you're, when we were listening to some of the panels, it's just a lot, it's a lot of macro, right? And I think it's because the commodity cycle is more cyclical than, than other parts of the cycle. But so it's also it's, it's 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 much more tied to inflation and interest rates and supply and demand and all that sort of stuff. It is a global asset, so it makes sense. That's why that's the interesting part of of we always say you know most of the time you can probably ignore the I don't know if you can ignore the macro when it comes to investing, but you you don't want to make your investing decisions based on the macro all the time, right? Most people can't do that. Even the hedge fund managers who run a macro hedge fund have a hard time doing that. But if you're running a business like that, then the macro is really, really important to you. And it's still hard to, hard to predict. So the lead into commodities here, I did my annual, I told you I was going to be doing updates of annual updates because this is a fun, what, the technical analysts always like the month end candles or whatever, mm -hmm. right? I still don't quite get the candle thing. What is it? It's like high, low, average closing. How does a candle work? 
Open, high, low, close. Okay. Technical analysts get excited about candles. I get excited about asset allocation quilts, which someone, I think, someone actually had the idea, said, you guys should make a compound capital quilt, an actual quilt of the asset allocation quilt. <laughs> I said, I'd buy that. Maybe like three people would. So I, I do the previous 10 years, and then I show the 10-year annual return number. The, the one that jumped out at me the most, I think, is commodities. They were down 10% in 2023, which makes sense. Inflation fell. Commodity prices fell. They had a decent 2022, a decent, pretty good 2021. But there's, commodities are still down 1%, 2% a year since, since for the, over the last 10 years. And this is using the ETF uh, DJP. And, you know, I'm sure you could have taken a different basket of commodities and it would look different depending on how you weight them and such. But my whole question about commodities is, and I know there's going to be a cycle where they're going to work like really well because they are so cyclical, but think about the setup. 40-year high inflation, two wars raging on in very important regions of the world for commodities. R rising interest rates, what, what, is the, what does the environment have to be for commodities to do really well and really outperform? Well, they did, they did really well in 2021 and 2022. But it, not, that, not that much better than, than stocks in 2021. And in 2022, they, they had one year that they outperformed. And that's it. That, I'm just... I, I, if you would have given me the setup, I would have thought commodities would have just crushed. I mean, oil is back below $70 a barrel or whatever. Yeah. I, my, I'm just surprised, given this setup, that commodities haven't done better than they did. And yeah, people are super attracted to real assets. It's like a whole mindset thing. And, it, and they did prove to be, at least in the short term, a really good hedge against inflation. But obviously, they're not a long-term hedge against inflation. I don't know. My, my belief with investing in commodities is you got to use trend. I, I don't think that they're necessarily part of a strategic long-term asset allocation. That's just my It's opinion. a trading strategy more than a, yeah, it's tactical, not, not buy and hold. The, the one thing people always say is, why don't you have crypto on here? Where's crypto on every, every year? So, you know, a handful of people say, why don't you include crypto on your asset allocation quilt? And here's the thing. I only include assets that have an ETF. There's no, <laughs> there's no crypto ETF. It, it is true. I'm using ETFs here, but here's my cutoff for crypto. So my theory is, I don't think you can use crypto as an asset class before 2017-ish because how many people had the ability to invest in crypto be before then? If you could figure out how to invest in crypto before 2016, 2017, you were, you were like a, a technology master. I, I'm, I'm sure I couldn't have figured it out. And so that's my cutoff. After we've got 10 years data from 2017, which is when retail people really jumped in, then I think I will be willing to include crypto. How does that sound? Well, I mean, that's kind of nonsense. You don't have to be a genius to figure out how to buy crypto at Coinbase. But the, the, no, the point is, are, are we supposed to include the returns for Facebook from the time they had a seed funding? That's, that's what I'm saying. If you include the time from Bitcoin starting and use those as returns, it's like, it's like giving the returns for, stock, for the stock market since it's the companies are at seed stage. It's no, I understand. I understand. Uh, prior to pick a date, 2014, crypto was like a nanotech. That's, or the, nano that's my point. It's, it was no, so, yeah, yeah. so, so small that those returns- Listen, you don't have to defend yourself. This is your quilt. Somebody it wants is. to make their own quilt, they can make their own. And, and maybe I'll start it from when there's an ETF. So starting in 2024, possibly. Although it's, it's already a few days into 2024 and there's still no Bitcoin ETF. So it's going to have to be 2025 now. Clock's ticking. Come on, <laughs> Gary Gensler. All right, you, you actually asked me for an update on this. I forgot I did this, a sector quilt, which just doesn't look as pretty because they keep adding sectors- which I'm not a big fan of. I don't I like, like that. I don't like that they broke out communication services from technology. I'm I sorry. Don't either. I, I'm the same way. 
And it, it basically ends up being similar returns too, but they added real estate and communication services. So this, it looks like it's an incomplete chart before 2015 or know why this is know why this is know why this is quite dumb the the way so communications it's 24 percent facebook and 23 percent google right so half of the etf is in google and facebook does it really need to be its own sector i agree and then you've got netflix verizon t-mobile but just i don't know it, it was similar to the the other asset allocation quote, it was kind of a worst to first type of deal. Energy was up 64%. Yeah, I just don't like change with sectors. I, I felt we had a good thing with financials and then they they spun out real estate into its own thing. I Same agree. thing with tech. I'm a nine sector guy. How about this though? Getting back to the commodity thing. So energy stocks were up 53% in 2021, 64% in 2022, and they were down a little less than 1% in 2023. Our energy stocks actually a better bet than commodities. If you wanted to make the commodities bet, why don't you just own XLE? Is that actually going to be a better bet for you? It's hard to envision a commodity super cycle that doesn't include energy participating, right? I mean, yeah. listen, if you're asking, would I rather own, would I rather buy and hold energy stocks or commodities? It's not close. I'd rather buy energy stocks. Yeah, but I don't think people would look at it that way. And I think maybe they should. Well, no, because again, the, I think the thing about commodities is that people are attracted to hard assets. Yes. It's, it's a whole There's mindset. Something tangible. Yeah. I think the most interesting one here too is consumer staples were down 0.8% in 2022. And that felt like an amazing year. And they were down 0.8% in 2023. And obviously that felt like an awful year. Hmm. Same exact return. Again, I, I, although no rhyme or reason to this whatsoever. Look at right? tech. I, 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 <laughs> tech, so tech, was a, tech was a top performer in 2019 and 2020. In 2021, it only gained 35%. was the fourth best performer. And again, so tech was the best in three of the last five years. Unbelievable. So four out of the past seven years, the best performer has been tech. Two out of those seven years, it was energy. And the other only filler is healthcare. Hmm. So yeah, it, tech dominance. I don't know. It, it, it has the feeling of this time is different with tech, doesn't it? How so? Just that you, you keep waiting and waiting and waiting for the mean reversion. I know we had a tech recession in a lot of ways, but it's just so, so big now. It feels like tech is kind of the stock market in a lot of ways. Yeah. A lot of people just dying for a tech mean version, needing it. Yes, which I don't know. Uh, more on tech in a minute. Here's one of my other favorite charts, S&P 500 annual returns. I do a scatter plot on this. I have to say, this was not an easy chart to make. I think I had to look it up on Excel. I can't remember where I saw this initially. I've made this it, before. Have you? It's it wasn't oh, easy yeah. to make. I feel like there was a it was it was hard to do for some reason. And I had to save save it so I could remember. But it just shows from year to year how all over the place things are in the stock market. Obviously there's there's more above zero than below zero, which is good, but there, there this is one of those little rhyme or reason. I think that's that's my whole ethos in the short term, is that predicting what's gonna happen in especially in like a year period is more or less impossible. Now look at the next one. I broke out through the end of 2023. Wait, can I just say one thing? Annualized returns. Just, 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 before, mm-hmm. just before we move off this chart, I saw an article a couple of weeks ago on Yahoo Finance. It was an interview with Harry Dent. And he was talking about prepare for like an 80% crash, you know, uh, as he often does. That's so unlike him. Yeah, it's very, he's trying something new in 2024. The reason why I think people are so 
susceptible to that sort of predictions is because the truth of the matter is bear markets are catastrophic. Like those, and they don't come along often. And I'm but not talking, I, hang on. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the bear market from 2022 or the COVID bear market. I'm talking about the 50% bear markets that he's predicting. So in 2009, for example, the S&P 500 at its lows was all the way back to where it was in 1996. I don't think that you could underscore or understate how devastating an experience like that is. Somebody, uh, Todd, I'm, I'm forgetting his last name, tweeted an article from a Los Angeles Times reporter at the bottom in 2009. And of course he, you know, sold. Uh, but it was just, they're, they're backbreaking and devastating. And I think that's why there's so much attention for that sort of, for that sort of like reporting. Well, that's also why there was so much doom and gloom throughout the 2010s, because that was so fresh in people's minds. People got so, so bearish and couldn't get out of that mindset when that crash happened. I, I agree with that, that those are just like the people still today worry about the 1970s inflation experience. And I think that's why so many people thought that the inflation experience coming out of the pandemic was going to be just like the 70s because there were still people alive who remembered that period and it's obviously scarring to them. So what do you think the implications are of just investing where you could have literally, in the case of 2009, 13 years of gains wiped out in you know under two years? William Bernstein updated his Four Pillars book in 2023 for a second edition. And his whole, because he talks a lot about bubbles and booms and busts. And he, he makes a similar point as you that like that is surviving those things is important. That The Charlie Munger thing of, listen, you're gonna have to sit through two or three of those 50% crashes and sometime in your life, you're gonna have to ride it out. That's Munger's thing, right? You do it. And that's happened to Berkshire, I think a few times in the last 40 or 50 years. But Bernstein says, okay, if, if you know that you can't handle those periods, then hold more cash, hold more money in T-bills or short-term bonds or cash. And even if that's not what the portfolio optimizer would say makes sense for you, you should have more equities. If you can't hold through, then you just have to hold more cash. I, I, and I think that's probably the answer, unless you have a better solution. No, no, I think, I think that's it. I mean, I think that's, that's exactly right. I, most people are not able to see their liquid net worth get cut in half, especially like, I think it's one thing if you're, you know, in your early thirties and stocks are crashing and it's like a blessing, even though it doesn't feel like it. But if you're in your 50s or you're close to retirement, forget about it. It's just not practical. And I think for, for most people, especially for retiree, the way to think about this is like, how many years worth of spending do I have in something like that? Cash, short-term bonds, T-bills, whatever bonds that can see me through. And if is four years enough, is three, is two, is five or six, I think that's the way to turn that dial is can I, you know, it, it, if we have a five-year bear market or something, that that is catastrophic and really long. So that's the way I think about it. Also, you mentioned Harry Dent. The you saw the piece about the rich dad, poor dad guy saying he's like a $1.2 billion in debt. And if if he goes bust, the bank goes bust, so it's not his problem. You know, I'm 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 changing my tune on him. I, he's he's winning me over. If I would have never known him to be a real person, I've never seen it in person, obviously. I would I would believe that he was a charlatan created by AI because he, he checks all the boxes. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's got to be. A, uh, it, is it a bit? I don't. I honestly don't know. It's, it almost seems like it's a bit, but it can't be a bit. Mm -mm. Okay. I don't think so. 
All right, so getting back to stock market stuff, like you talk about the bad, let's look at the good. So I updated annual annualized returns through 2023. I did five years, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, and then all the way to 10, 28. Five-year returns, this is for the S&P 500, almost 16% per year. But, but the consistency of this chart is what is, I think, the magical part of the stock market. 10 years, it's 12%. 20 years, it's 10%. 50 years, it's 11%. Now, obviously, there's time periods within this data where things look really bad. The worst one, and I think it's going to be the worst 30-year period in history for the stock market, at least modern history. If you start from 2000, we're at just a touch below 7% per year. And so that's going to probably be the worst 30-year return. That's always my favorite stat is an 8% per year return from the peak in 1929. For 30 years from there, you got 8% per year. and That's the worst 30-year return in the S&P 500 history. I think that we're going to get that bad. from the year 2000. That is pretty bad considering the pain that you had to suffer for those returns. That's not great. So you lived through an 85% crash and still got 8% return. I, I think that's unbelievable. Because move it forward two years and your returns were probably 16% per year or something. Nah, right? I'd, rather so just be, that, I'd just rather just be in cash and avoid the hassle. Well, But my <laughs> point is that the, the, the short-term returns are so all over the place and the long-term returns – are relatively consistent. And even if we don't get these returns going forward, people keep saying that, it, it is quite a wonder that the stock market can do something like this. But I, th- I feel like there's there's a certain segment of the population that doesn't just know a lot about this stuff who thinks that it's manipulated or it's propped up or whatever. But the reason why the stock market goes up is because earnings go up and dividends grow go up and the value of these companies goes up. You know, I was thinking how like uh, some of the Bitcoin evangelists who denominate everything in terms of the price of Bitcoin, you know, where it's just like a religion for these people. Imagine if there was those people inside of the stock market who are stock market zealots that were like, and just proselytizing all over the world. Like, listen, here's the deal. You could own a piece of Apple. You can actually own a piece of NVIDIA you can own a piece of the best companies in the world. Like, imagine that that cartoon character existed, but it's just as reasonable as as the Bitcoin. More reasonable. Zealots. I'm I'm probably as close as we could get to that. I I push the stock market as much as I can. So the thing is, so since 1928, the stock market is up 9.8 percent per year. That includes the 1929 to 32 85 percent crash. That includes a 50 percent crash in. 73, 74. It includes 1987. It includes the two 50% crashes we've lived through. All the bad stuff that you can throw at it, and it still did 10% per year. I think that's amazing. And, and, I, and I, I do think it's reasonable to think, I don't know if that can happen going forward because we've taken away the, the left tail in a lot of ways, but it's still impressive. Totally. All right. Uh, Torsten Slock from Apollo had a piece on the market cap of the Mag7 that it's four times the Russell 2000. He was saying this is this is a picture of the AI bubble. And he's saying the Mag7 is the AI bubble. It's, it's way bigger than the whole small cap index. And then these charts we've talked about before, how these seven companies are bigger than Japan, Canada, and the UK combined. We've kind of beat this one to death, but I thought his follow-up was interesting. Look at this next one. It's not just the U.S. stock market that dominates the rest of the world. This is the U.S. Treasury market, total value of government bonds. I've never seen this this one before. The United States bond market, and this is just treasuries, is pretty much the same size as the bond markets in China, Japan, the U.K., France, Italy, and Germany. Hmm. So it's it's our bond market too, and this this is why the 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 U.S. is so dominant 
in, in all facets because we have the, the two biggest, most liquid markets in the world in treasury and the US stock market. We got an email, speaking of Apple, in my predictions, I was pretty pessimistic on Apple. And somebody in our inbox said, one thing about Apple that is not in the price, like they haven't said anything. They've been very coy on what they're doing with AI, if anything. If they end up with a with a new product or a new service or platform or whatever, like none, nothing AI related, including the headset, which is the first new category in a long time, none of that is in Apple. And I thought that was that was a good point. Like, if that happens, Apple could have another monster year because nobody's expecting it. Would you buy the glasses? Not yet. I'm not gonna buy the first edition, but they they I I can't wait. So if they said you can you can watch the Knicks game courtside every day because you wear these goggles and you have to pay a yeah thousand bucks whatever you have to pay for it, you would do and, that. And like imagine being on an airplane and watching something equivalent of a movie th- on a movie theater size screen. I, I can't, can't wait for these things. It. I can't do it. You're going to look you like an idiot. You can't do it. You're going to look what? like an idiot. Dude, people used to think wearing an AirPods made you look like an idiot. And I okay. agree. I don't think you're going to be seeing people walking on the streets with these oh, things on. I think you on. will. You probably will. And okay, in that, Silicon Valley. No, nah, I can't wait. I think these things are going to be monsters. Can, can it really be that much better than an 80-inch TV? Yes. You think so? Eh. Yes. I don't know, but I don't know. Uh, okay, we've talked a lot over the years about Kathy Wood's predictions for Tesla and how the here's the bull case and the bear case and the base case, and the, the FT did something about this, and they looked at the current bull bear case for 2027, bull base bear, right? And it's from the current price, it it's just an astronomical leap forward. The bear case is $2 trillion in market cap. Didn't we do this last year? That's kind yeah, of... Yeah, but so so they have these good charts. But the th- I mean, the thing is, is that I think the reason people still take these semi-seriously is because their bull case from whenever it was in 2017 or something was right. Yeah. Like, like the, the first one they did was right. And I think that's the most dangerous place to be as a pundit or as someone who's trying to predict the future is being right once in a row. And... Because at that point, you've got all sorts of goodwill, and it doesn't matter how many times you're wrong because you can point to that one time you were right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why – so they they put some other ones in. And then they they actually show here's the current price, and here's what the case was in 2020 and in 2021 and in 2022, and those ones didn't quite – didn't even come close, obviously. So I guess – Not impossible. Not impossible. Yeah, that's a probably a pretty unlikely. Mostly impossible. <laughs> Speaking of Tesla and and Elon, so Elon's just gotten so so famous and powerful. Bloomberg has a podcast that they're dedicating just to covering the business of Elon, which is fair game. I mean, it's massive. He's a very incredibly powerful and influential person. Twitter is such a hellhole. He, he did with <laughs> with all of this. He was fighting with Mark Cuban last night, calling. Mark Cuban, a racist. It is, it is really, really ugly what goes on on Twitter. And I think, like, I, I wanted to throw my phone. Yes, I'm like, why am I scrolling on this bullshit? Think like the the good thing is that for most, I think most of our listeners are blissfully unaware of the nonsense that is Twitter. Like, I know that it was a big part of our professional development and we still use the platform a ton for research and you know met a lot of incredible people but do you think that most 
most people are just not on Twitter. Right. And the people who are on it are really on it. I, I, I still just come back to the, you have to have the right filter. So I follow finance people that I know will share stuff I find interesting, charts and stories and such, and then sports stuff. That's that's my Twitter experience for them. Maybe some pop culture. It's hard that's to avoid some of the ugliness. But you know, like you know when you're when you're when you're texting with somebody, just things to get lost in translation. I don't know if they're texting with a smile, something you don't know intent. And that's Twitter. It's just hard to communicate with strangers when you don't know the intent. And uh whatever. Enough of that. And people people keep well people keep commenting about how how if I was a billionaire, why would I spend all my time fighting with people on Twitter or, you know, because Bill Ackman is doing this and Elon Musk. And I think it's just the human condition that it doesn't matter how much money you have. You're going, some people are just going to get the dopamine or have the desire to do this, right? So you watch that that show, like the murder at the end of the world or whatever. To, sh- to, share, to share their opinions and try to influence others thinking. Yeah, but- yeah. And, and they want the adulation, they want the likes, and they want the retweets. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. but you saw that that show at the end of the the murder at the end of the world, or whatever, with Clive Owen. I, I'm still only partly way through that. We're we're falling a little behind on TV, but his whole thing is he's this he's like this Elon Musk, Steve Jobs type guy, and his he's using his billions and his power to uh, create these these new. He's like doing backroom deals, and he's like the Illuminati kind of guy, right? We're gonna we're gonna fix the climate based on this one group of people, and that's like the movie star thinking of this, like the billionaires are doing these backroom things where they're going to save the planet. And in reality, it's like, ah, they just want to post. They want to be a poster. They want to tweet. You don't get like the, like I, if I had all this money, I would do something super. And obviously Elon Musk has some really cool stuff, but he also, he just wants to be a poster. And I think that's the human condition. I want to post yeah. and I want the retweets and I want the memes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, from Goldman, they did the f- close to final numbers for mutual and ETF inflows and outflows, money markets. I think the, the most impressive thing. Seven trillion. Holy moly. The most, well, the most impressive thing is that out of the seven trillion, it was 1.3, almost 1.4 that went into it. It's the relative percent in that in those assets that went into it. Right? So we're talking what 20% of the assets came in in one year. That that's the part to me that that is just mind-boggling is how much and the fact that money is still pouring into bond funds. Bonds went through their worst bear market ever in 2022 and partly in 2023 as well, and money still poured into bonds. No one, People didn't flee the, I mean, maybe some of that money that went into money markets came from bonds, but there was a net positive flow into bonds in 2023. Only 95 billion into US equities. Not much. I think that's relatively surprising, the bond thing, that people didn't flee en masse because bonds got crushed. I think yeah. they, they, they said, man, those losses were terrible, but yields are higher, right? Mm-hmm. All right, Bank of America. Remember when this was a bad thing? Passive now accounts for the majority of U.S. domiciled AUM. This is 2009 to 2023. This is just the fund world. Passive went from 20% to 53%. But it's important. This is just the fund world. Yes, not Nothing the Nothing to say about direct, direct ownership. Yes. And, and I, as far as the fund world goes, this should be, in my mind, 80-20. I, would, I think that's possible and probably should be someday. There will there will not be a day of reckoning where this chart flips. If that's what you're hanging your head on as no. a professional manager, I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen. Those days are over. I agree. Uh, ben Johnson did did good work at, over at Morningstar. He did a he made a chart on of ETFs, the top twenty ranked by average daily AUM, showing total value traded. So 
there is... So this is showing the relative value being traded every day, more or less. Yeah, like so... Out, out of the total, I, how much is being traded? And then I guess in, in English, what's like the average holding period? You're able to impute that from these numbers. Did I make... A, that's, not, that's a real word, right? Impute? That makes sense. So SPY, for example, is... Tracks the S&P 500. The average holding period for that is 17 days. It's got $400 billion in assets. Total value traded is $8.7 billion. IVV, on the other hand, and VOO, which is the iShares and Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, the average holding period is 262 days and 200, is it 85, 65? Whatever. So IVV, VOO, those uh, VTI, holy cow, VTI. There's like <laughs> The average holding period for VTI is 665 days. Wow. So the, there, there are ETFs that are bought and held. There are ETFs that are traded, even at the index level. I just thought this was- So SP and QQQ is average holding period is 15. So- those are used more as placeholders or hedging vehicles or shorting vehicles, those kind of things, because they're big and liquid. And it also makes sense that Vanguard funds are bought and held longer. These are the, monsters, these are the monsters. S&P, uh, SPY and the Qs alone accounted for roughly 36% of total ETF trading volume. And then he says, with the launch of the spot Bitcoin ETF seemingly imminent, it's worth noting that Bitto ranks in the top 2% of ETFs that's ranked by lowest average holding period, just eight days. Okay, so when the, whenever Bitcoin ETFs are here, and we'll talk about that in a little bit too, there's going to be a ton of turnover and the average holding period is going to be very low. I would think so. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, some good news. Survey from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. They asked who expect their financial situation will be better off over the next year. This goes back to 2014. And we're coming up. We are coming up. Inflation is abating, sort of for the most part, except... At the bagel store, I went to get, I got a bacon, egg, and cheese on a wrap, and Kobe got like one of those, a little Mario cookie with its face on it. 15 bucks. All right, whatever. Not, not, not great, but whatever. But $9 for bacon, egg, and cheese. Here was the part that really irked me. There, we were with a bunch of his friends. I got two of them, a soda, a seltzer, soda, and a... Chocolate milk, $8. And I want to be like, come on. <laughs> come on. This is not, this is just not right. $8 for two drinks. Okay. So who are we blaming for high, for high food prices? Because I think it makes sense with wages going up in the service industry that food prices would be higher. I'm sorry. Because it's, it's either a, higher a, wages a, or a 300% which... markup or whatever it is. So you're you're in so you're in the greedflation camp then with this. That's greedflation, absolutely. All right, I, I guess will buy what? that. I I will never go back to the bagel store. Especially, I guess, especially when you consider how much of the service industry is still tip related in many ways, or they're trying to, right? They're not everywhere. You're just buying food is getting tips, but that makes sense. Uh, there's another chart: share of respondents who say it is more difficult to get a loan versus a year earlier. Um, Super high compared to the past, not, not surprising at all. And the question that I have is, we're looking at this chart, it's like, why didn't this have a bigger impact on the economy, the availability of credit? Is it just because- Maybe it wasn't availability. Maybe it was just, the, the terms were just higher. But isn't this did, what matters? Did people front load their borrowing? Or, or were, were, the ca or were the cash cushions just that large where the borrowing didn't make I don't think Main Street small business owners like front run borrowing. I think they're 
I think that's what's showing in this chart. It's really it's harder to get a loan than it was a year ago. And it, and obviously, it impacted businesses everywhere, not to minimize or poo-poo it, but just in the aggregate, it didn't impact the overall economy. I'm with you. It's bizarre. How about we, say it differently? Not say it didn't have an impact. It didn't bring the economy down. Yes. We had to talk a couple weeks ago with an international portfolio manager. And I said, listen, we had this regional bank crisis here. Why didn't we get something like that in Europe? And we didn't really have a good answer, but rates went there went from negative to high really quick. Why wasn't there, why weren't there more blowups of rates going from 0% to 5%? That, that is relatively shocking to me that there weren't more th- banks or hedge funds or overlevered whatever that blew up from that. It, things have been relatively orderly. Same thing with bonds. Yeah, it, it is surprising. I just I I would have expected more blowups. I guess that's a that's a good thing. All right, June twenty twenty two, U.S. inflation rate nine point one percent, U.S. unemployment rate three point six percent. Now U.S. inflation rate three point one percent, U.S. unemployment rate three point seven percent. Wow, yeah, pretty good. I tweeted this, and boy, did I find you talk about Twitter. I find the dregs of somehow I got retweeted into politics Twitter on this one, and that's that's the part that I wish I could just just cut me off forever from Twitter, is I'm on this team, and so you're an idiot, or I'm in this team, and this is great. And not, not having context, and I, anyway, don't look at this next one. Okay. Give me your guess. Jeremy Horpadal, did you look at this already? Mm-mm. What was the median family income in the U.S. in 2022 for a married couple with a children under 18 living in their house? Median, median. for income, for, I'm sorry, for per, per couple? Median household income, if you have a child under the age of 18. Married couple. So two so two incomes? Yep. Ish. Uh hundred fifty thousand. New York has warped your brain. Uh correct answer is 120,000. Which Hold on, hold still... on. I'm not that first of all, I wasn't that far off. Okay. It's not like I said it was three hundred thousand dollars. The median but, but... income, the median for two ostensibly two 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 earners. So I, I said seventy five and it was sixty. Not that far okay. off. But my point is just that I think one of the reasons people are always so pe- – people in this country are richer than I think most people assume. And maybe income doesn't mean you're rich, obviously, but look at this next one. Uh, Bernie Sanders retweeted this thing saying 63% of Americans do not have $500 in the bank. And Bernie Sanders is – his finance stuff is just so far off kilter with buybacks and he's claiming that Vanguard and BlackRock are an oligopoly. Uh, Anyway, I, we see these stats all the time, and we, we debunk them. 63% of Americans do not have $500 to pay for an emergency health care bill, and that sounds like an awful place to live. Uh, this Matt Darling guy who does a really good job at myth-busting these things, he says median household net worth is $192,000, including $8,000 in checking accounts. That means more than half of people, more than half of households in the United States have $8,000 or more in a checking account. But I and thought we get, can't pay for a $400 bill. Yes, that, yeah. and he, obviously that is not... True. All right. You and I were walking around Kansas City, Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> not Kansas last week. And the downtown, it was a, what, a Tuesday or Wednesday, I think? Tuesday? Whatever day it was. And the downtown was dead. We asked a lot of people, what's going on here? And they said, we don't mean, just- and we don't, we don't mean it was quiet. There was, there was, we could see multiple blocks with nobody on the sidewalk. It and was, we talked to people it was and they, they said, they said, listen, it's like this since the pandemic. The weekends are bumping here. And if there's a game or something, like it's a ton of people and people come to have fun. But during the week, people just aren't coming in. People live in the suburbs and they don't want to come into the office anymore. 
And I, I experienced this. I went to Cincinnati a couple months ago, and they said the same thing. And it felt really quiet. And they said, listen, people just don't come into the office anymore. Or if they do, it's one or two days a week, and it's just not as busy. And so you and I were talking about this and saying, listen, the commercial debt, people know about this. Like, people have been, you know, predicting the end of this commercial real estate market. Like, what is what is the reckoning here? Because this has to have an impact. So the Washington, or the Wall Street Journal says there's a staggering 19.6% of office space in major U.S. cities that weren't leased as of the fourth quarter. That is above the previous records from 1986 and 1991 is the highest since 1979, which is as far back as the data goes. Uh, the bulk of the space, this is someone in New York who works at a real estate brokerage. The bulk of the vacant space in our buildings that were built in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Why would any business want to lease a building that was built in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s? They don't. Right, so if you're a business who wants people to be in the office, you've got to give them a reason to come in. You're not going to lease some old building. I mean, unless you retrofitted it or something. So what, what, what's, the, what's the end game here? What happens? When, is this just death by a thousand cuts? Yeah, I have no idea what the future holds for these office buildings that nobody is going to be occupying for the foreseeable future. Like people is keep just, saying, well, turn them into apartments and condos, but how expensive is that and how long does that take and what are the rules and regulations on that? That seems like a, it, it makes sense in theory, but... I don't see that happening very quickly in practice. It, it sounds like something that's like easy to say, oh, just, yeah, just convert them. Yeah, yeah. how? Right. With whose money? So, but, I don't know. So who, who, who loses on this deal? Do the, the banks lose? Banks. Do the real estate investors? Does ever? I mean, I'm sure there will be winners. Like the distressed debt people will be winners, but uh, I, I, who's on the hook for these loans? I, Borrowers it, and the, banks? I, I don't know. I don't know enough about this to even comment. But, but. I mean, the weird thing is, is that the risks you can see coming clear as day are rarely the risk that oh so, take, so yeah you know, yeah take things so the, down. The, the idea that commercial real estate is going to take the system down I guess not impossible but I would say highly unlikely given that it's so in our face nobody's the bonds have all been marked right like nobody's going to be caught off guard like oh shit there's a problem in commercial real yeah no kidding we know <laughs> everyone knows people are people have time to prepare for it, whatever that means I guess yeah uh, the Financial Times had a piece. And they looked at books and literature and publications going back to 1600. I don't know how they did this. And they looked at words per million related to themes of progress versus caution in English, French, and German books. And they show that progress and future are on a huge decline in the last, call it, 50 years, since the 1960s or so. And caution, worry, and risk are increasing. And they're saying this is a bad thing. Unfortunately, taking, this is what people want. Like, I think so too. But the the weird thing is, like, pe people complain all the time about our education system stinks, and people are so worried all the time and about the future. But then, why do we create keep creating innovative companies and technology, having technology breakthroughs? Like, is it just what? that people say they? I, so it's not like we're not talking about progress in the future as much anymore. But and we're being more negative than positive. So why do we keep keep having all these innovative companies and breakthroughs happen? That, I don't see my, the connection. I think those are, that's a non sequitur. I know. I think it's like watch what people do, not what they say. People say the you know I, I'm more cautious and worried and no. I think progress. just just there is more demand for negativity from the readers and the general audience than there is for positivity. Yeah, and I, I'm so saying it's, that, it's, it's that not negativity just, hasn't had an impact on the world really. Besides no, of social not. media, of or whatever. but like it's not it's not just quote the media's fault. They're doing what they think is going to be
the most profitable, and there's more desire for negative headlines and positive ones. Yeah, they're giving the audience what they want. I also think yeah. maybe people in the past had to be more op overly optimistic because things were so crappy back then. Like if you read any history books, even in the past couple, like people were, things were really bad back in the day. Now things are so much better. People just have more time to be overly pessimistic. Right? I highly doubt there was ever a period where the society at large was super optimistic about the future. I'm sure there's been, you know, uh, bouts of it sprinkled yeah, throughout like history. The, like the roaring twenties and such, but I'm sure there was plenty of pessimistic people too. Can you, can you just imagine living in a world with, without a, a heater and without an air conditioning? No. And people didn't really start brushing their teeth until like the 1900s. Did people just go around smelling really bad with really great bad teeth all the time and just no one said anything because that was that was the world? I think so. I think about that all the time. Hygiene back then? How, uh, yeah, how bad? When did, when did deodorant get invented? Probably in the last 100 years, maybe? Oof. Yeah, not pretty. So the supply chain issues has been fixed. That's good news. How much, how much of... We're looking at a chart of supply chain pressure subsided. It's basically round tripped and then some. I feel like this is as as responsible for inflation as anything else, including like the stimulus. Yeah, it was just, but it was mashing the supply chains with increased demand from the stimulus that was double whammy. Remember all of the ports, the ships in the ports of Los Angeles. Yeah, people were like trying to figure out, like, what if we stacked three instead of two? <laughs> people were trying to figure that stuff out. I guess we got it, huh? I have noticed that all the, a lot of the car dealerships now are, are way fuller than they were. That was one of my anecdotal things for a while, is that the car dealership parking lots were just empty. They seem to be fuller now. My Jeep, my Jeep, I've got to take it in. I was, I, like, I can't drive it anymore. Once I'm, if I'm going on the highway above, like, 50 miles an hour, and if I hit just a very normal bump in the road. The entire thing starts shaking like aggressively, like the tires, like I feel like I'm going to crash. So I have to, I have to retire my vehicle. I've got to get it over to the, the shop or whatever. Scary. I don't know what's going on. That doesn't sound good. Isn't that the thing with Jeeps though? They just, they're not very good highway vehicles. If you have the top that can come off. This, I'm telling you, the entire, the entire car was like aggressively shaking. I thought it was going to crash. Okay. Did you just I didn't, hammer but... the gas and all right. All right. Is is the crypto fee war the fastest fee war in history? Yes. Uh, the Bloomberg guys are all over this. James Seifert and, and Eric Belchunas. So they they listed all the ones that are coming out from ARK and iShares and Bitwise and Vanek and WisdomTree and Invesco and Fidelity and all of them. And the fees are, I think, as low as 25 basis points is the lowest one, maybe 20, and they're doing some fee waivers. And like because Bitcoin, these, Bitcoin isn't doing, they're waiving fees for six months or $5 billion. Yeah. So Bitwise is doing something similar. Yeah. So these places, these places, no, first mover advantage is a thing. So they, they want to get money in, but I think a lot of people were actually surprised at how low these fees were. And I, I kind of am too. The fee war basically happened before any assets even hit these things, which I think is a good thing for consumers. Uh, but I'm, I'm surprised that it was, and then Grayscale just said, eh, <laughs> F it. We're charging 1.5% and we're going to milk this thing for as long as we can. And I guess just retire it once money comes out. Are they, are they just hoping that, listen, people probably have gains. Maybe they want that. Yeah. That's I think from a, a business, it's a good business decision. Why would they, why would they lower fees? How is, they already how have 27, this? they already have $27 billion in assets. I'm, shouldn't this be an SEC thing, though? 
What? Where, I don't know, it, it just doesn't seem fair. If all these other places are offering fees that low, that they can just keep their fee high because some people might. That's capitalism. <sighs> I don't like it. All right. Listen, so I I don't, asked, and I don't like the bagel store charging $8 for a bagel. Guess what? I can take my business elsewhere. True. That This is greedflation. All right. We had a tweet yesterday. It costs less to buy a Bitcoin ETF for a year than a single trade on Coinbase. 40 to 60 basis points versus 25 basis points for a retail sale trade. Obviously, if you hold your Bitcoin at Coinbase, paying it up front. This is kind of like brokers versus AUM advisors, right? If you hold it, that's fine. But how does Coinbase continue to, what do they bring to the table now that ETFs are available? Why would anyone transact on Coinbase unless they already have money on there? Why would they ever get another new customer with an ETF that exists? A few things. Number one, you can only trade the ETF from 930 to four. Uh, and Bitcoin moves like hell. And so people want to trade when they want to trade. That's one reason. Fair. Um, and that's one reason. But no, I'm just kidding. Isn't that, isn't that going to go on? Isn't Robinhood going to have that immediately? Where like, hey, we're going to allow you to trade the Bitcoin ETF around the clock. Yeah, someone's yeah. going to someone's going to yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Also, Coinbase is going to be a major custodian for a lot of these ETFs, so they're going to benefit from that business. Although there was a research report, I think Josh was sharing it with us that it's going to only add. They're projecting it to add like a only 5% of revenue, not a huge line of business. But what's good for Bitcoin is good for Coinbase. More activity, more trades. Uh, also, it's a global market. Like Coinbase is a global custodian. Yeah, I guess there already are ETFs around the globe and Coinbase has been fine. I just, where's the growth coming from them? I, because custodian, that's, you know, that's a, it's take a, off a tiny slice. Yeah. It's a, yeah. yeah. One last thing on Coinbase. There's also people that just want to feel like they own the physical Bitcoin, even though it's even though we know it's equivalent. There's people that just don't want to deal with Wall Street. They just want to own it through Coinbase. Yeah, but I don't you think those people already exist? How many new people coming in are going to go, I'm going to choose physical Bitcoin over an ETF? Very few. All right. John, our production guy, says, you have a death wobble, probably loose track bar. He says he can crawl under there for you if you want. He said this Wrangler thing. Dude, it's awful. It's just very scary. Okay. Uh, all right, Matthias Dorda from Asset Dash tweeted, we were talking about like, will there be a sell the news? Won't there be? And, you know, who knows? Nobody does. That's, uh, that's we'll see. Is it priced in is the hardest question Predictions are hard to, to make, about, especially yeah. about the future. As Yogi but, like, what's said. priced in is the hardest question to answer. <laughs> we'll find out after. Yeah. Uh, but so Matthias made a good point. Look what happened when the first gold ETF was listed on the New York Stock Exchange. You're bringing in many more potential investors. So wait, when did GLD come out? Like 2006? Uh, 2004. Okay. That makes sense. That was a different world back then, but I, I, I wouldn't be shocked either way. This is one of those times where I would not be pounding the table that Bitcoin is going to moon from here because of no, the No, you know why? Because even though we said that like there's permanent, there's permanent uh, supply that's been taken off the market. All right, fine. So then forget about those people. They don't matter then, right? It's a, it, the, the float for in all intents and purposes is much, is much smaller. So it's really the marginal buyer and seller. Now, the question is how many people front ran the ETF, right? There's a lot of people that thought that the ETF was going to come to market and they bought Bitcoin and they plan on selling it into the ramp. So I don't know. We'll see. I would not be surprised. I would not be surprised if it goes to $50,000 immediately. 
I would not be surprised if it goes back down to $40,000 immediately. I would not be surprised with either outcome. They listed 10 Bitcoin ETFs on here. How many are still there in five years? Do, in do five, we have okay. In five years? Um, I would say... I mean, there should be what three of them? I know there's a lot of S and P 500 ETFs, but there's really I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name names, but I think this one. So one, two, three, four. Huh. Are gone one, or left? Two, three. I think four, maybe five. We'll be here in five years. I think half of this this list will not have assets and we'll shut it down. I don't love any of the tickers. Hodel's probably the best one from Van Eck. I'm surprised there's not a BTC. I guess Fidelity has FTBTC. I'm surprised FB, someone didn't, didn't just get BTC. Yeah. All right. We got an email, a good email on paying down a mortgage with a 3.6% rate. We heard from a bunch of people about this. Another reason, another good reason that you could have mentioned in favor of not paying down a cheap mortgage. Interest on balances up to 750K is tax deduct deductible. So the effective hurdle rate that you need to clear for it to make sense is even lower than the mortgage rate of record. Yes. Also, I agree. Also, people sometimes conflate the payments that go into an escrow account with a mortgage payment, even though these are costs like property taxes and insurance that you would need to cover whether or not you had a mortgage. Once you strip out the escrow payments and, the, and net the tax advantage, your mortgage effectively costs much less than what you would see your account leave your account each month. I think that's a huge portion of it, yeah. is that if, you're in, if your insurance and your taxes are rolled into your monthly mortgage payment, that's, that exists regardless of what you're doing. So that's a really, really good point. I don't right. think people net that out. Yeah, payment on your house doesn't go away just because your mortgage is paid off. Right. So yeah. I thought that was a really, really good, good point. point. But yeah, the, the tax part of it is that, that's a good that's a good one. Ben, I shared I shared this chart with you, this tweet with you a couple of months ago. We were talking about like once upon a time in the fifties, a family could own a home, a car, and send the kids to college all in one income. Yes. Yeah. So that, that's been a meme for a lot of people. Yeah. And people say that like they're so smart, but then this this was the best dunk on that I've seen. Uh, Matthew Chapman, percentage of Americans who owned a home in 1950, 40%, now 66%. Percent who owned a car in 1950, 50%, which is crazy. This number I, this number kind of shocks me. Percent who owned a car now is 91%. That's way higher than I would have assumed. Uh, percent who had a college degree in 1950, 5%. Percent who have a college degree now, 44%. Nostalgia is a hell of a drug. And I think people warp their brains into thinking that the past was better when it- Morgan had a great chapter on this in his book, Same as Ever, talking about how everyone thinks the 1950s were this like, you know, beautiful time period. And it's just very easy to debunk. Yes. Yes. It, it sounds, yeah. I, it, I think it's the pictures, honestly. Like the picture that you include of the- in, Have you ever seen a 1950s house- do you know how small the 1950s house is? How many people are signing up to live in one of those today? How many millennials who are going to sign up to live in a 1950s house? And guess what? No air fryers, no mudrooms. How do you even <laughs> live? True. No mudrooms. <laughs> Did they have mudrooms in the 1950s? I you think know, not. Bedrooms are so small, you would put three kids in my mudroom back in the 1950s. That is true. There would have been bunks and five people to live there. All right. You know, uh, you know I, uh, I lived in a bunk bed. Oh, I had a Did bunk you? bed when I was growing up. Oh, yeah. I had to share one with my brother. I So when we went to my father's house, my parents were divorced. Uh, father, when we went to my dad's apartment, we we shared a bunk bed. Wow. I, I just, I haven't thought about this in a long time. So it was a one bedroom apartment. It was my dad's bed and our bunk bed. In the same bedroom? In the same bedroom. That is something. I think that's something that 
a lot of people don't. There were so many more shared bedrooms back in the day. Now it's like yeah. everyone needs their own bedroom. Yeah. I agree. All right. Uh, here's and my, actually, actually, my father shared a bedroom with his grandfather. One of my uncles still lives in the house my dad grew up in. Not a big house by any means. Very tiny by most standards for today. My dad had four siblings. So it was five kids in this house. And I have no idea how they fit. Yeah, so we talk about the 50s. My dad grew up in the 50s. Literally, as a seven-year-old boy, shared a bedroom with his grandfather. Could you imagine? Right. I think there was a lot of that. Yeah, that people don't understand what it was really Yeah, the like. good old days. The good old days. L-O-L. Yeah. Um, all right. Sports are both dumb and great. How's that? Do you ever step back not, and think- Not like, dumb. What, 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 but do you ever step back and think, like, why do we care so much about this stuff? But I, I, th- allow me to have like a, like a moment here as a middle-aged father- so my kids got really into Michigan the last two years. My twins are six. My daughter's nine going on 10. She got really into it. So I brought her to her first game this year at the big house, and it was awesome. And they played on January 1st against Alabama. I, my double reverse last week, my double jinx reverse worked. And it was, it was on January 1st, and we had nothing to do. So I just drove around with the kids all day trying to like run errands and take them to the park and stuff just to kill time, to tire them out before the game so they would actually sit and watch it. And we were listening to like the Michigan fight song and Mr. Brightside that they sing at the game. And my kids are screaming at the top of their lungs and they all have Michigan shirts on. And I thought like, I, am, I honestly got, I almost got like, choked up because I'm like, oh, this is the stuff. This is why we do this because I, it's something to do with my kids. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's where I am at life. Like, oh, this is okay. And so Michigan won the national championship last night and, I'm, and I'll let the kids stay up and watch it. Two of them, the two young ones didn't make it. They fell asleep on the couch. Uh, <laughs> but, but it was like, it was one of those things where you know when they always say in psychology, when you achieve the goal you thought you wanted, it's, it feels like almost a letdown? Because it's, it's like the journey along the way. Is, and I yeah, thought yeah. like... Yeah, of course. But I had that feeling last night. And I was trying to tell my kids, like, enjoy this because, you know, this might never happen again for you ever. Like, this could be a one and done thing. And, but I'm, you know, I was probably talking more to myself than them. But that, that's, a, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, try to enjoy this because they're whatever. They're all below 10 years old. So they don't, they don't know. They... Uh, and also, my, my kids got so lucky. The Lions are going to the playoffs the same year Michigan won the national championship. So I'm like, listen, guys, it is not always going to be like this. There's going to be a lot more heartache in your future as a sports fan. Well, congrats as a Michigan fan. Lions ca- caught a tough break. I think the Rams have a serious chance of beating them. I do too. That's yeah. going to hurt. When, but I, I'm just glad they, they made it. So It's a tough break. I, I'm, rooting, I'm rooting for the Lions. We got an email, Ben, from one of our younger listeners. And I'm reading it thinking like, it's a little weird. It just... It just sounded it, a little weird. It felt like read, it was coming from someone who, who spoke, of, it was English was their second language or something. Yeah, like yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't flow. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's exactly right. So then he answered with, P.S. This email was written entirely by ChatGBT, except this part. I hope that shows that I can be fairly tech savvy. I'm still mostly an idiot. I want to express my gratitude, nothing else, blah, blah, blah. Um, and you know what? Somebody asked us a couple of weeks ago about like networking ideas and stuff. This was super clever. I, and I, I spoke to this gentleman. Great kid. That was really- it was that's a good way you, to stand out. That's how you do it. I, I couldn't tell if it was lazy or enterprising, but I guess I'll fall in enterprising. Here's my first AI request. I, we were at the hotel in Kansas City, Missouri, and every time you walk into a hotel room, who pops up on the screen? Every time. Uh, AC Slater. AC Slater. Can we please replace Mario Lopez with someone else? Can I have a, a pick of like 50 different celebrities that I can choose from as that's an crazy. AI version of them? He's so it's not like, Mario he, Lopez? He's looked like 18 years old since he was 15 years old. Yeah, nice guy. He's got the dimples. Great. I'm sick of seeing him every time I walk into a hotel room. Can it be someone else besides Mario Lopez? 
That's all I ask for, AI. <laughs> Give me someone else. All right. You know what's a great service? Uber One. So Uber One is a monthly subscription fee. I think it's like 10 bucks. But what you get six, you get 6% back on your rides. So if you don't use Uber a lot, then- I don't you know, use Uber not, enough to- I don't use Uber enough to make right, sense but, me, but But for people that do, it's a great service. I, I love it. You spend a hundred bucks, you get six dollars back in like so when do we get cash the, fees for rides. When do we get the Uber credit card? Don't need I mean, it. This, that's essentially it, right? Don't need okay. it. Uh, did you know that, do you have Peacock? I think we spoke about Peacock recently. I have every streaming. Yeah. I have, if, if it's a streaming service, I own it. So how much, how much of the world is going to know that Chiefs Dolphins are on Peacock? Like only on Peacock? Now, if you're a Chiefs fan and a Dolphins fan, I'm, I'm guessing by now you got the memo. Well, I had to watch but Michigan games were on Peacock this year. I had to, how many people but, in Kansas City do you think are going to sign up for Peacock and then cancel it? And how many are going to forget to cancel it? But this this is why you have to buy have, it. This is why the streamers have to add sports, though. They have to. Because if you're, how you if you, get new people. If you're a Dolphins Chiefs fan, you 100%, if you're not going to, maybe you're going to a bar. But if you're watching at home, you're, you're paying for the service. All right, here's where Peacock benefited me recently. There's this movie that came up. I'm moving into recommendations here. This is what they call a transition in the business. So there's this movie, The Holdovers, I really wanted to see with Paul Giamatti. just came out. It's a, it's a Christmas movie, and it's an Alexander Payne movie. He, he did Sideways, which was one of my all-time favorite movies. I love that movie. And I love that the director and writer and Paul Giamatti were coming back together. And a bunch of people who listened to this podcast had emailed me saying, hey, Ben, you have to watch this. This is a total Ben movie. And I was going to either rent it or you know, pay the $19.99, and, and I said, I saw that it was coming to Peacock like December 20-something, December 27th, and I'm like, oh, I'll just wait a week till it comes on Peacock, and it was there, and I watched it, and loved this movie. Absolutely loved it. I don't know if it's for you, but here's, here's what it is. It's a Christmas movie, which I already love. It's a coming-of-age movie. It's just, it's about this kid who is stuck. He goes to a boys' school, like a boys' boarding school that's, that's away, and his parents go for a vacation on Christmas, so he has to stay at the boarding school with one of his teachers. That's the whole premise. It's a simple premise, and it's also, you know when they do the who's in the movie and who produced it and who directed it at the beginning of the, the credits? And it says, in introducing, you know, it's a new actor or actress. This kid had literally never done a movie before who is like this 16-year-old, 18-year-old kid at boarding school, and he was fantastic. He was just a smart-ass, uh, wise mouth, and he was so good acting with Paul Giamatti, and I loved this movie. And I think movies are, for me, movies are back. I've seen four good movies in the past month or so. The Killer, good, not great. Oppenheimer, give it all the awards, which it probably will, it sounds like. Past Lives, I loved, and The Holdovers was excellent. Movies are back for me. If you're a, if you're a Ben movie person and not a Michael movie person, you have to see the holdovers. Well, we've I made a domestic yearly box office chart. And I would say we peaked at 12 billion and now we're at like nine. So not terrible. I mean, it was looking pretty dire, but substantial growth every year since the pandemic. Uh, I am very excited to see the holdovers. Not very excited. That's an overstatement. I love Paul, Paul Giamatti. So I will see that movie, even though he, it might not he, be a me movie. He more or less plays Miles from Sideways, but more yeah. neurotic. Yeah. But he he was excellent in it. I, I saw he won the Golden Globe and he deserved it. I watched Past Lives on the airplane. Okay. And it's definitely a good movie, but it's not for me. I was I was pretty bored. I could see that. Yeah. I think you might but be bored it, with the holdovers, but 
So these are the these are the top the top twenty movies from this year. Barbie, Super Mario, Spider Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, Oppenheimer, Little Mermaid, Avatar, Ant Man, John Wick, Sound of Freedom, Taylor Swift, Indiana Jones, Mission Impossible, Hunger Games, Transformers, Creed Three, Elemental, Fast X, Five Nights at Freddy's, and Wonka. Pretty underwhelming. It's kind of funny how people were saying Barbenheimer was showing that like movies are back and it's not just sequels. Look at all the sequels on here. Pretty it's underwhelming. 90% of them. Pretty underwhelming. Even after I just said this, movies are back. I, that's because I think streaming is going to save movies. That's where I'm still falling on that. The, the really good movies, like not great movies, the good movies are going to be on streamers going forward. We did, we did like, a, we spoke about Clive Owen earlier with uh, that, that Hulu show. And I think we did a bit on like where Clive Owen go. But you know what I was thinking as I was watching uh, Home Alone and then Mighty Ducks? What happened to Daniel Stern? He's a huge movie star in the early in the nineties. Great City comedic Slippers, actor. Home Alone, yeah. And also Emilio just... Estevez. What happened to him? Sometimes, I think sometimes new actors or actresses just come along and they just get replaced. It's a good question. It, it does seem to happen quite a bit. I guess it's like the stock market. John Cusack was an enormous movie star for a while. Huge. I've heard all the movies and then Huge. just kind of it. John yeah. Cusack's best role? The Rock. Con Air. Oh, okay. wait. Nicholas Cage oh. in The Rock. I, I just got Nicholas Cage and John, and John Cusack confused. Wait, is, is. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> it took. <laughs> Con Air and The Rock are very similar movies. I, I did watch one good horror movie this weekend. It was on uh, Amazon called Better Watch Out. This I'm giving thing. you these. I'm giving you these excellent movies recommendations. <laughs> You're like, eh, not for me. But there was this one movie where a guy had a foot growing out of his face. Uh, <laughs> it was really scary. So this thing grossed. This thing grossed twenty thousand dollars at the box office of the U.S. <laughs> and Canada. And Canada. That's a new record for you. Listen, am I, am I recommending this movie? No, I'm not. But it was fun on Amazon. Here, let me let me tell you the premise of this movie. Let me tell the premise of this movie. A young brat is his parents are going out and there's a babysitter coming over and he has a crush on the babysitter. And then uh, the house gets attacked by people and things go completely haywire. It was clever. It was clever. I wish I could say more, but I can't. It was clever. Okay. That, that movie's never been made before. Not like this. Not like okay. this. There was a twist. Good little twist. All right. All right. Right. Oh, one more thing. Looking at your list. My son is into action movies, so we watched all the Indiana Jones movies over Christmas break, which was two weeks long and way, way too long for the kids to be off. But CGI, here's my take. CGI has ruined action movies. I'm not seeing the last one. I just, I'm, I'm not doing it. It, Dial it, it, Destiny. Was, it was, yeah, it was, I, I was, not, and I love, love Indiana Jones. And here's the thing. We watched the old ones first, then we watched the new ones. And the CGI, the ability to use CGI it's like a crutch because now they can make it, it's just so much more over the top. And obviously the original Indiana Jones are over the top, but they make it look realistic. The CGI, yeah. I feel like I'm watching a video game. It's, it's not even like, there's no stakes at play when it's CGI to me. Fargo slowing, slowed down a little bit for me. I mean, I'm, I'm still with it, but. Okay, the last episode I thought was really good. Okay, yeah. Did you watch I'm, the I'm eighth sure. episode? No, right, nah, I'm 100% really like, Oh, I, next week, I am so, so excited because I've been pretty dry with TV stuff. I'm so excited for True Detective. All right. I haven't watched no? it yet either. Yes, I'm excited. No, it's not, it's not out yet. Of course you haven't watched it. Oh, okay. Well, the last season with Vince Vaughn was really, really bad. This one's supposed to be really, really good. Jodie Foster. Let's do it. Among All others. Right. What, what's our email? Personal emails, personal responses. 
animalspirits at thecompoundnews.com. Thank you for listening. We will see you next year. Next time. <laughs>